Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 288. Afrelech and Chanukah to everyone and to each one of you. May this Chanukah be an illuminating, brightening one that illuminates both our insides and our outsides, the power of the Festival of Lights. So this will be a special Chanukah edition because Chanukah begins this evening. Chanukah Tovshin Pei, 5,780. This program is in loving, blessed memory of our father, Leslie, dedicated by his children, Gillian, Richard, and John. So let's begin with Hanukkah. Chassidus applied to Hanukkah. One of the big questions Chassidus asks is, my Hanukkah, the Gemara asks, my Hanukkah, what's Hanukkah? And it talks about the miracle of Hanukkah. What was the miracle? That... um, due to the fact that the Greek Syrians, the Greeks, had defiled the temple, there was no more oil, pure olive oil, which had to be sealed with the seal of the high priest to be found. So the miracle number one was they found Pach Hashem, and they found a cruise of oil. But that was still not enough to illuminate and, and be lit for eight days. So the miracle, second miracle was that it actually burned for eight days, even though there was only enough oil for one day. And after that, the Kaveya, the Chazal, established the holiday of Hanukkah. This happened during the second temple. And ever since, we have this holiday. Asks this a question, a very simple question. If you look at the whole story, the story of the cruise of oil is one detail. The main issue was that the Greeks had went to war the Maccabees, the Jews, went to war with the Greeks because the Greeks were entering the temple and defiling it. And they won the war, as we say in al Nisim, we talk about the victory. As a result of the victory, therefore, one of the benefits was that they were able to rededicate the temple, Chanukah Samizbeah, Chanukah Samikdash, which is why it's called Chanukah, by the way. One of the reasons, Chanukah is dedication, rededicating and clearing up and purifying the temple. But that was a result. If they won, the war wasn't won, then they would never have been able to do that. So why do we celebrate it in that fashion? All other things, for example, going out of Egypt, we celebrate the exodus from Egypt. Of course, there are many benefits that grew out of that. And the answer Chassidus gives is a tremendously powerful and relevant one. And that is because the main focus of the war was not a physical war in the sense where they were like in Haman's times and Purim's times, it was a war of, of genocide literally wanting to eliminate and exterminate every Jew, every man, woman, and child. This was a spiritual war, a war over light, a war over bringing spiritual light into the world. The Greeks were not interested in killing the Jews. They were challenged the Jewish faith. Like we say, to make them forget, not just the Teda, Teda Secha, your Teda, that it's God's Teda, and Lavira Mechukir Tzenecha, to move them away and they should forsake the laws, not just the laws of Torah, the laws of your will. In other words, they had no problem with the moral and ethical part of Judaism and Torah. They had no problem with the wisdom and intellectual philosophical basis of Torah. They had a problem that it's divine. Why are you attributing this divine element to it, this Gedusha? And the defiling of the oil was not just, because you could always light any oil. Now here is important to be shemen zayizoch, pure olive oil, which, which is, indicates and symbolizes the purity of something. Not just that it can burn a flame. Every flame can be burned even with, with uh, defiled oil. 
but that it should be done in a way, in a perfect way, in a holy way, in a Shem and a, what we call a Ner Kodesh, a holy flame, that means a spiritual one permeated with the holiness of the divine, that was the issue. So therefore the, the, the mitzvah of Hanukkah was designated over the substance and the essence of what Hanukkah represents, not just a win, a win over a battle. That was part of it. But above all, the battle of what? Of spirit over matter. Which leads me to the first question that was asked. And as I said, I gathered different questions over different times. These are questions asked now around Hanukkah time. What was the dispute between the Jews and the Greeks? So here's how the questioner asks it. I remember learning that the debate between the Greeks and the Jews was about whether one should pursue pleasure in this world or whether it's the next world that matters. It seems that even Judaism agrees that one should pursue pleasure. It's just that best pleasures are in the next world. So it seems that they agreed on principle but only disagreed about whether there's a world to come or not. But ultimately, both ideologies are pleasure-seeking. Is that correct understanding of the debate? What was the real dispute between the Jews and the Hellenists? Is it true that they were debating what was the true good? And why were the Jews necessarily correct? Well, I would not exactly put it that way. Number one is, as we know, the Greeks worshipped the body. The Olympics were actually born there. The body. Now, we know that in Judaism too, a body is divine and sacred. That's why the Mitzvah Magid says, a small hole in the body is a big hole in the Neshama. And the Tate of the Baal Shem Tov, Ozev Tazevimeh, not to ignore the body, not to punish the body, because the body is part of the divine plan that you elevate it and you refine it. It can be a challenge. When we say body, of course, we don't just mean physical body, we mean physicality, materialism, and everything that the body and the animal soul represents. So there's an approach you can take, which is one of, um, uh, of Purusha, which is abstinence, and avoiding everything bodily. A lot of fasting, a lot of even self-affliction, Yisurim, Sigufim, which was what some people did to break the body's desires. But Chassidus came and said, that's not the approach. Today, we, that's not the way. There were times for certain individuals that was the way. So we know that Taylor talks about Neshama and Guf. means to be healthy. It's not just the Nefesh, but also your body. You're responsible to keep your body healthy. Your body is a divine, uh, a divine uh, instrument, a divine creation. The, however, the fo- whether the focus is that there's also a soul, that the body is meant to be a vehicle for the soul's life. Now, the Greeks believed in philosophy, and they were great philosophers and thinkers, as I said before. And they sp- spent time addressing morality and ethics. But they wanted to cut out, and they did not want to accept a divine, higher, super-rational the idea of a neichi Hashem alekecha, a Kabbalah sale, that there's something greater than your wisdom. Reishis chachmi yirus Hashem. That before wisdom comes our respect for a divine force beyond us. That divine is what they did not want to have and rejected. So the difference between the two approaches and the Hellenists, which include the Misyavnim, the, Misyav, the, the Jews who became Greek, so to speak, affected by the Greek culture, was yes, rational, yes, refined ethical behavior, yes, but not the divine. Not something that we just absolutely suspend our mind to accept what God says in the Torah, whether we understand it or don't understand it. So the, the pleasure part fits into this. Because if it's pleasure because you understand it, meaning you're the center of the universe and God has really nothing to say about it, it makes sense to you. So pleasure is, a, um, is an objective. 
But they choose pleasures only when it brings pleasure to the divine purpose of life, not pleasure as an end in itself. We don't suffer and we don't punish ourselves, as I said. We don't afflict ourselves just to cause ourselves pain. That's also mutilating yourself or any other way of self-inflicting any pain. But that's not because we believe in hedonistic or materialistic pleasure. It's because the body has to be sanctified, the body has to be elevated and harnessed and directed toward divine goals. So there's a very fundamental difference. And that is the real fundamental debate. There is, I spoke about this a few weeks ago. Was it last week or was it two weeks ago, I think, that there is a machlekes in by Jews and Sabbath in the Rambam and the Ramban what the ultimate reward will be this world, meaning the body and a soul, soul and a body, or the ultimate reward will be only souls because a body ultimately is inferior to a soul in its spiritual aspirations and its spiritual uh, sensitivity. But the halacha is like the Ramban, that will be in the Sham of a Guf. The Rambam also holds El Bitchis HaMesim, resurrection, because the body was part of the process of serving God. But the ultimate reward, according to the Rambam, you could say, and I don't even want to say it, Lahavdil, because Lahavdil, but in a subtle way, it's a little part of, yes, spirit, in the sense of but spirit, but in the sense of the body not being part of it. So what does that mean? That means that spirituality is closer to God than the body is. You can say the mind and so on. But it's really not connected to this subject matter because it obviously has a very different uh, connotation. The key thing I want to focus on is that, yes, by Jews there's also body and soul. And that's the ultimate goal is joining both together. Whereas the Greeks worship the body and spiritual matters, but only spiritual matters that made sense and were connected to their, the way they understood and felt and experiences. Okay. So the lesson, of course, to us when we talk about Hanukkah is that Hanukkah, as the Levush writes, Purim, the focus is a lot on Gashmis. Why? On meal, on a meal, on sending food gifts, on Stokka and Betonus Levyenim. Why? Because there, the Gzeda, the decree, was against the Jewish body. Chanukah, he writes, is the Gzeda against the Jew and the Shama, the spirituality, the divine aspect. So that's why Chanukah we celebrate with light, and Purim is not celebrated with light, it's celebrated in a very material way to designate because the bodies were there, were they ready to, Haman was wanted to kill the body, obviously the soul as well, but also the body. So the lesson to us is, especially in the context of how Chassidus explains it, it's the time to celebrate our souls. Ner Hashem Nishma Sodom, the soul of a human being is the flame of God. Ner Mitzvah V'Tayr Eir, Mitzvah is compared to a candle, Eir Tayr is compared to light, to illuminate. And we know the lessons of illumination, that, that little light dispels much darkness, which is why we light the Hanukkah flames in the evening and facing outward, because its goal is to actually dispel the darkness the spiritual, psychological, emotional, and all forms of darkness in our world. And of course, within ourselves. So Hanukkah is the celebration of light. And light means not just physical light, it means spiritual light. The idea of light being subtle, but has more power than any darkness. It dispels it automatically and naturally, as the Altarev explains in Tanya, chapter 12. So that's one of the many lessons. And with that, let's go to a few other Hanukkah-related questions. And then we will... Um, uh, Sum it up. How do we explain the victory of Hanukkah when in the end Greek secularism seems to have prevailed in modern times? So to continue on this theme, the Greeks were philosophers and thinkers and mathematicians and astronomy and so on. We know the Greek uh, wisdom. 
As a matter of fact, the Rambam in Kiddush HaChodesh, the laws of blessing the new moon, sanctifying the new moon, actually cites that some things we derive from Greek calculations of astronomer. So the Greeks were known for their wisdom. But it was a secular wisdom, as I said. It was not Tera Secha. It was wisdom as an end in itself. The idea that it's God's Tera, divine Tera. So it was a secular form. So the question is an excellent question. How can we, you explain that? The past century, the vast majority of Jews left Orthodoxy. A majority even intermarried. It almost seems like Hanukkah is obsolete because the Greeks, which means secularism, won out. Very good question. And actually never thought of it. So thank you for that question. The answer I would give is very straightforward. That's exactly why we have Hanukkah. What the Greeks introduced, and which was also embraced in a lot of the Western world and perhaps other parts of the world, and increased as the years went on, was exactly that, a, an alternative approach where divorcing wisdom, science, mathematics, medicine, and so on from the divine, cutting out the Torah Secha. And in many circles, it actually did prevail. To the point, if you talk about the Enlightenment and where you have the battles between science and religion which began in the 17th, 18th century and continue on today, you can say it's an extension of that Hellenism, of that Greek approach to life. Even though there was plenty of peers, many, many centuries where there was still the integration or at least the relationship between religion and science. And as a matter of fact, science was often practiced by the religious leaders of in different, uh, the different uh, denominations. However, in the la- later centuries, as this questioner writes, it, secularism has become a very powerful force to the point that science and religion are seen as an- an- antithetical. Faith and modernity. Belief and reason. Faith and reason. Belief and modernity. This conflict still exists today. Well, that's precisely why we have Hanukkah. Because Hanukkah teaches us that thousands of years ago the roots of this battle began and Hanukkah prevailed. And ultimately that gives us strength that even till this day, though there is a lot of secularism and materialism and so on, Hanukkah is still with us in the words of the Ramban, Nachmanides, in the beginning of Parsha Bahalescha. So he says, even though Hanukkah Menorah came to commemorate and came to rededicate the Menorah in the temple, the Menorah in the temple has seven seven branches. That, temp- that menorah, even though it was a near tomid and eternal flame, ultimately it ceased. Ultimately it was extinguished with the destruction of the temple. Hanedas Halolu says the Rambam, these flames, the flames of Hanukkah, will never be extinguished because they came from a darkness and they overcame that darkness. They came from a challenge against spiritual light, the spirituality, the divine element of Tehidah and it's a necha, that all wisdom and all science and all ethics is based on a divine absolute. So though it could be rational, but it's driven by the axiom of Anoichi Hashem the Ten Commandments, that I am your God. And that's why we can't tamper with it. We can't decide if one day logic dictates that ethics should be a little different Let's do it differently. The Nazis were the perfect example of the, ult, of the utter destruction, obscene example, I should add, of the utter destruction that can come when man decides that they're God and replaces and cuts out the divine element. So that's why exactly why we have Hanukkah today. Secularism has not won. Secularism has spread. But that's exactly the battle today as well. 
what our job is, and that's what Hanukkah comes to remind us, that no matter how much darkness out there there is, how much ignorance there is, we have to reconnect. <clears throat> Connect the illumination, we say, the age of enlightenment. Is what? Not just light of wisdom, but light of the divine. That we are base, that we are human beings, not just based on our intelligence and our emotions, but we're human beings because we're created in the divine image, which keeps that reality check of knowing, like the declaration the founders of this country, the United States of America, wrote into the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal, and by that virtue have inalienable rights endowed to them by their creator. It has to come from creator, take away the creator. Even the deists that were the founding fathers understood it would compromise these values because you could always say, you know what, some are more equal than others. This established in, in an unwavering way that nobody can tamper with it, that there's a divine element. So Hanukkah, in a way, is essentially the basis of this country's principle that, the, that ethics and morality and rights and freedoms, all freedoms, are based on something that's greater, on a light, on a divine light which we'll talk about in a moment in context of the public minorities. So this is essentially, so therefore, I would say that's exactly why Hanukkah is so important today, even more than ever. Precisely because the world is still under the influence of a life that divorces values from higher purpose. Divorces moral morality and ethics on a human level with a transcendent element a transcendent element means that we are part of creating something greater than the sum of the parts. That we are created in the divine image, not the other way around. Okay. So which leads to the next question. Public menorahs. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, thank you for your informative weekly talks. I have become a secret admirer of yours. Perhaps you can explain both halachically and hashkafically, which means legally from a Torah legal point of view, and hashkafah is from a Torah philosophical, ideological point of view, the use of menorahs in public places, cars, etc. The concept seems to be at odds with the intent of Chazal, of our sages, as to what the true nature of Hanukkah ought to be. It would seem if Chazal wanted extreme PR, they would have instituted torches, not candles. Perhaps also you can explain in general what this idea is of publicity for mitzvahs, which has become synonymous with Chabad. Okay, very good question, and thank you for that. So we know with Hanukkah, let's begin with Halacha. Pishum and Nisa. The Rambam from Chazal, from the, that the lighting of the menorah is an element of Pishum and Nisa, publicizing God's miracle. And what's one of the best ways to publicize it is by lighting a menorah, which can shine and people see from a distance. It's a celebration, it's a commemoration, it's a declaration of light, as we've been discussing, even on a very physical level. So... That's not a, in, in, instituted by Chabad. That is not instituted by any modern vehicles. This is something that goes back all the way from the beginning of the nest to the point that it actually compared sometimes to Ner Shabbos, the Rambam compares it, says, Pirsu says, publicizing God's miracle, the light of Shabbos, candle Shabbos, light Shabbos candles is to bring Shalom bias, peace at home. It's a different pop function. So there's a function, a very clear function. So this PR that you're calling, I don't want to use the word PR, Pirsu is that PR. No, we don't have to hire a PR firm. It's not PR in the modern sense of the word, but it's the idea of publicizing. And there's a mitzvah to publicize. Mitzvah lefarsa mesa mitzvah. To publicize someone who does a mitzvah. And in this case, even greater, God's mitzvah. Which we do even every holiday in its own way. But Hanukkah, as the Rebbe emphasizes, has more focus that Pesu is emphasized more than any other holidays and other mitzvahs. 
And Pesumen, this is why we light the menorah al Pesach Beisei by the door facing outward. The reason we don't do that today, especially in the, of the custom of Chabad or other customs, is the Rebbe has a whole bunch of letters on that because today we live in places where that doesn't really work. There was a time there was danger involved. Also, many apartments are 20, are 20 ama, 20 cubits high, so people can't see it anyway from the street. But that's not, that's not relevant to our discussion. It's another discussion. But still, the focus is that it should be by the door facing outward. And as such, why? Because that's Pesumenis. So this is a new concept. This is a basic halacha that everybody understands. What's the hashkafa of it? The, the ideology. The ideology is, number one, that we're proud of it. We're proud of our heritage. We're proud of a miracle. Number two, publicizing God's presence among us. People should know here is a miracle that happened. And we publicize it. We let others know about it. And we light a menorah. And people ask, what is this menorah lit? Then we explain to them why. And third, especially in our generation, this is where the public menorahs came in. Something the Rebbe instituted based on this principle, not a new principle. Take Persumanissa to the fullest extent that we should have public menorahs. Interestingly, we have, when we light the menorah today, that we light at home, we also light in the shul, in the synagogue, which some say is more of a Persumanissa than at home, which is more for family based on a Teisvis and other commentaries. And going now, public menorahs, so you go back to the original. So today... Maybe the menorah in your house may not be as public as a real public menorah. So we write public menorahs. Obviously, halachically done. It has to be done the right way. Sometimes it is done symbolically with lights and not with uh, oil. But the point is that it publicizes and it's a source of pride. And when the debate was raging and it went to the courts about is this, religious, is this a religious symbol? and there has to be a separation of church and state, the case was made and prevailed that Hanukkah is symbolic, not of a religious symbol, it's a symbolic of the victory of the, of the few over the many, of the weak over the strong, over spirit, the victory of spirit over matter, of light over darkness, of religious freedoms for all, of the basic beliefs that we have in a higher force. So this became known as something that is not necessarily Jewish or particularly religious. It has symbolism that's beyond that. And more than symbolism, it actually commemorates, it's celebrating that. The Rebbe does not like the word symbolism on this. He's changed it once in one of his edits. So this is both the halacha basis of it and the hashkafa basis. Now you ask a good question. So why didn't they establish torches? Because at the end of the day, the way we fight darkness is with subtlety. Even when it's done in the public square, even when it's done in a public fashion, it's the subtlety of light. We're not looking raging flames. The subtlety is the power. A little light dispels darkness, which teaches us much that it's not about how a powerful flame that burns things down and that, that, um, that, uh, that um, annihilates everything in its path. We talk about a forest, uh, raging fires and a forest fire and so on, but rather the subtlety of a little flame but in the dark outside, in the dark, both physically and metaphorically, dark space, this flame stands out. So that's the explanation for that. Um, and with that, yes, that will cover the Hanukkah elements. I just want to do some cross-referencing, as I always do, since we've already been doing this now for six over six years. My life has been supplied. So episodes 47 and 48, 93, 143, 192, and 238, essentially every year. 
Um, I covered Hanukkah, different angles of it, and uh, if you want more material, please go there. All part of the series of My Life Chassidus Applied, which leads me to make a few announcements. We have a website called chassidusapplied.com where you can find all these archives. There you can download them in any way possible. You can watch them, obviously, on video on our site, and it's embedded in many, many sites all over the world. Obviously, it's also found on YouTube, but you can also download it as an MP3 or uh, as a podcast, so you can listen to it in your car, or if you're exercising or traveling or in any other way. And we're trying to put it on almost every possible platform. Now there's a WhatsApp group where you can also receive it weekly. So basically, every possible way that you can uh, tune into this program, which of course is by demand, because of the popularity and the relevance of the program, thank God. Okay, with that, uh, there's more where you can also submit your personal question in a completely anonymous way on the forum at chassidusapply.com where you can see right there, ask. And those questions come right into our, my inbox. So the, number one, I can't even know who it is because it's completely, it's a forum, it's completely anonymous. Uh, but I receive it and then we organize it and we address it in its time. So some, there is a backup, but um, your question will be answered at some point. Okay. And as well, you can also find the essays the popular annual essay contest that we run, My Life Citizen Applied Essay Contest. Now thousands of excellent essays on, you name it, on the entire spectrum of life, applying citizens to contemporary issues. With that, let us move to some other matters. Since it's also Pasha Miketz, so let me just say one thing about Kates, Miketz. Amy Kates, Shnashayim Shana, we're talking about, of course, the story of Yosef, who was thrown into prison. That's the end of last week's chapter that we read yesterday. And when all seemed hopeless, then he was remembered. He was remembered. And he came out, not only did he get freed from prison, he becomes the Mishnah Lamelech. He interprets Pharaoh's dreams. Then Pharaoh appoints him to be his second in command, and he would turn Egypt into a superpower by establishing this uh, global grain business. That was the commodity of the time due to the Great Famine which ultimately would also bring his father and his brothers, his brothers and then his family back down to Egypt where they would spend good years together and that would lead later into the exile and the bondage of Egypt, but that's not for now. So this chapter is a very watershed moment, but you see the same story of Hanukkah as commentaries already point out, the Shalom and others, that what? The same, Yosef in microcosm is the same story. It's, a, it's about, it's completely dark. But then there's an end to the darkness. Kate sum That the darkness is an end to darkness. And not only light comes out of it, but the greatest light, Joseph, saved the world, including his own family. Became Lemichi, became a source of sustenance. So the lesson of Miketz is very direct and very straightforward. There's also other hints to it in the chapter, which I'm not going to go into now. I've spoken in previous times, but I just wanted to make the connection to live with the times about how from from becoming a nevet, he became a melech. From a servant, he became a great king. Which teaches us that no matter what situation we're in, even when it may seem like despair, and there's no cruise of oil, there's no pure olive oil, you don't seem to sense there's any purity inside of you. We talked about this, the mimer of the Altareb, of Isha Achas, story with Alisha, that she says, my husband died, and they're coming to uh, the debtors, the people we owe money to, the creditors, are coming to... Um, demand the our children. I have nothing left. And what does Alicia say? Let's look. And she finds, we'll find some containers, some cruise of oil, some pure 
thing in the soul. So there's no such thing as hopeless. There's always room to grow. And Hanukkah teaches us this in each person's situation that there is the miracle that will happen because there's something always alive, a pile of flame that's always burning. Okay. Now, a few questions that are connected to this past chapter and a few chapters before. And due to time, I wasn't able to cover all of them, so I'll hopefully cover many of them right now. We've been speaking in the last few weeks about the deception we find in Pasha's Teldes and Vayetze, the chapters where there's deception, deception of the, the blessings, to get the ace of the blessings, the deception of love and deceiving Yaakov, and that whole chapter with Rachel. And I believe we covered that. But there's a little follow-up, which I'll address shortly. But this leads us to the next question. If deception is unacceptable, and we explain, how do you explain the unacceptable behavior of the tribes? The seemingly unexpected behavior. What do they do? In last week's chapter, Yosef's brothers, Joseph's brothers, they're jealous of him, and but they almost kill him. And then, last minute, they decide to sell him into slavery. How do they behave this fashion? So here's the question. It is very strange that there are so many stories about the Shvatim, the tribes, that make them appear like they were bad people. Reuven has the story with Bila. Shimon and Levi killed the whole Shechem. Yehuda, with the help of his brothers, wanted to kill his brother Joseph and then sold him into slavery. And then he had Judah's story with Tamar. It seems that they would tease the, it would, it seems that they would tease the children of the Shvachas which means the, um, the, the, the shvachas were the maidservants that Leah and Rachel had. Yosef boastful with his dreams. Why is Yaakov considered mitosh shlema? Mitosh shlema means that his offspring were complete. They were all perfect. Not like J- uh, Abraham and Isaac. Additionally, there are almost no stories that tell of their greatness. Why is that? So I believe this question I did address in previous years about the tribes um, there are many different explanations for it, but above all, to remember that the Torah can be read in many different dimensions and levels. When you read on the Pshat, yes, you read about a certain jealousy, but you have to say that there's something more going on here. These were not simple people. So the Shalah is a fascinating explanation, which I believe I explained in previous years, but I'll just sum it up, that they actually saw Joseph and his dreams of superiority over them as a uh, challenge to God. Because they knew that each tribe had their unique qualities, including Joseph. The unique quality of leadership and kingship was given to Judah. Later from Judah would come the Beis David, David HaMelech, King David, and all the kings come from Judah. Mashiach will free from Beis David, from Yehud. Every tribe has its role, and suddenly Joseph is expressing a form of leadership. And they took him seriously. They knew it was not simple if he had such dreams, and he's telling it to them. So they saw him as a murdered Bamalchus. A Melchus means a mutineer, a one who challenges a king. And in Jewish law, there are very strict laws about this. You're challenging the authority. So according to the Shalot, they were essentially challenging Mashiach itself. Who from whom will come greatness and leadership? So their intentions were actually coming from a very pure place. However, they were wrong because God did want Joseph to have leadership for a certain period of time because before Judah could assume leadership, you have to have Yosef's leadership. And the story will conclude next week's chapter, Vayigash, and they talk greedy, meet each other. That's why you see so central a point is Judah and Joseph, even though the other tribes were involved. And the Haftar of next week talks about that as well, how they were once two branches and what ultimately would become the split 
in the children, the, the children of Shlema Melech and Yeravam, and there would be a split in the whole uh, leadership. All this, the tribes wanted to prevent the split that would cause so many problems. Ultimately, when Mashiach comes, they will come together and unite again. This is a brief, the brief analysis of it. So suddenly the whole story takes on a different meaning. They were actually coming to protect the unity of the Jewish people, to prevent disagreements, to prevent discord, and to give leadership to whom it belongs, the one who has the humility, Judah. That's why Judah was such a figure in this story, how he almost replaces Benjamin in the next week's chapter, as I said, Binyamin, in order to, um, in order to save him and send him back to Jacob. So the bottom line, there's a deeper meaning to this story, and like it is with everything in the Torah, as I've talked many times, you really want to understand the Torah, you must understand the spiritual story. You can always explain the physical story, the different reasons, for example, Reuven was the Bechar, and not Yosef, and, and other things like that, but it's all going to ultimately be forced to fully understand it in the full glory, as a lesson to us, a blueprint in life, of these Shvatim, these tribes, these holy tribes that become the ancestors of the entire Jewish race, you need to understand that on a spiritual level. So we discussed in this program some aspects of it. I just gave a little taste of it. I didn't go through all of the stories with Bila and Shimon and Levi and so on, and uh, Tamar, but I can do that other times. I don't want to, as we try to keep focused and keep the limited time and not over-focus on something and uh, so keep it uh, limited. And that way... We can cover things in different weeks, and I will, please God, but neither address it in different weeks if things that I have not addressed yet as, at all. But if you look in the, the, the episodes, the past episodes on Vayeshev and Miketz, and I read before the, the cross-referencing which episodes, I did discuss some of these stories, and I will discuss more of them. But overall, if you remember, as I said, all these people were called Merkava. The others are called a Merkava, a chariot, which means their entire lives, 24-7, or a channel of what God wants in this world. The Shvatim are called Mekofta Tata, a lower chariot on a lower level, but also, so their behavior, though they can make mistakes and everybody can, and that's part of also the lesson, all of this, but they also reflect a deeper, um, deeper, a deeper narrative going on here, part of which I shared now, and we will discuss in other, in other programs. Okay, another question that came from last week's chapter Hypocrisy. So Rashi, a commentary there talks. There's a verse in last week's chapter that talks about how the brothers, when they heard Joseph and they were jealous of him, they couldn't even say hello to him. They couldn't speak to him in a peaceful way. Hey, there are those that say they could speak to him, but not in a calm and peaceful way. So Rashi says that in this so-called negative story, you also find something l'shvach, something that's like in their merit, that they were not echad b'peh, echad b'lev. They were not hypocrites. If they had feelings, negative feelings to them, they couldn't speak to them and say hello, they couldn't put on a face and be two-faced and say, we really feel negatively about him, but we're going to speak like nice, like what they used to call speak with forked tongue. They didn't have that, so that was, that's a shvach. So the questioner asked this question, today's chitas, meaning he's referring to that Rashi, says that Yisrael's brothers didn't have echad b'peh, echad b'lev, meaning that one thing they feel in their heart and one thing in their mouth. If they felt that way, they were seamless and that's how they were transparent and that's how they expressed, they couldn't express themselves to him. 
That's what Rashi says as a quality. So the questioner asks, I know you have to have obviously soul for everyone regardless, but for someone who's not holding at that level yet, someone not holding there yet, is it better to not be two-faced and to pretend to like them, or is it better to be the three, to be like the Shvatim, the tribes, and not be two-faced, which Rashi says L'shvach as a quality. In other words, should we behave the same way? When you know someone you don't like, for whatever reason. So obviously you have to work on liking every person. But for whatever reason, do you have to express it? Do you have to always show it? Because then at least you're transparent, you're honest, you don't like the person, you express it. Very good question. So, I would say a few things. Let's first go back to the point that the Shvatim had a very good reason why they had difficulty with the Yasef. It wasn't just they were angry at him, and so on. Because then they could work on themselves, and that's what the Torah would expect of them. To work on their feelings, and also work on them for speaking nicely as well. It's their brother, after all. But since they had a deeper thing, they could not bring themselves to make believe that there's nothing wrong. There's something seriously wrong. Whether the explanation I gave before from the Shalah, or other explanations, they are not able to speak them as if everything is fine. They, it was important for them to convey that message as well, and that's how they were. They were honest people. For the rest of us, when we talk about we don't like somebody, it could be for a very petty reason. It could be for reasons you should work on. So there, I don't know if you would apply the same idea, that just because you don't like someone for some reason that really is not legitimate, that means you have to also demonstrate it in language and insult that person or show them that you're cold or detached and indifferent? I would argue no. Echad b'pechad lev means that don't be a hypocrite, meaning when, that don't, don't stab someone, don't uh, speak nicely to someone, then stab them in the back. The other way around. Not speak badly about them because you don't like them. Don't speak nicely and then in the heart feel otherwise and then whenever you have an opportunity to undermine them, you undermine them. That would be the lesson I would say. But if you did indeed have something, a negative feeling, work on it. And if indeed it is a serious matter, then maybe yes, maybe there has to be a way to communicate, let the person know. Don't fake it. But, but it has to be on the condition that it's important to address and important that person be aware of it. So then yes, then the lesson is from the Shvat in the same way. Don't be a hypocrite. If there's indeed something that happened, a serious thing, that you speak to an objective party and they agree, this should be addressed. It would be good to bring it up to that person in the proper way and address it instead of making believe everything is fine when indeed it's not. Now again, this is case by case because there are situations where it is best to overlook. So of course now the question goes back on the tribe. So why didn't they do that? Why didn't they sit down with their brother and say to him, listen, what you're doing is behavior that is absolutely unacceptable, whether it's due to Yehuda being the leader or other factors. So... Why didn't they do that? And that would be echad b'pe'echad They would make it clear, we don't, we don't, we're not happy with the situation and we're not able to really speak to you peacefully. He sure picked up on that. Why didn't they? So number one, we don't know that they didn't. Maybe they did try and it didn't work. For whatever reason, the destiny, the higher will of God wanted it to be this way. So maybe they did try. It's hard for me to accept that they absolutely didn't try. They just got angry and that was it. They got jealous and that was that. You see there's a shroud of the mystery. Now, the truth is I didn't go through every medrash. There may be a medrash that does discuss that. And that would be interesting to look into. Okay. So we stop with that. Now, another question that came from last week was Yutes Kislev. 
So someone asked the question, why a Kitruga 19th of Kislev? A little introduction. That was the day the Alter Rebbe was released 221 years ago, last Tuesday, from prison. We understand that Chassidim understood it. That was a vindication of the Alter Rebbe's approach in spreading Chassidim. So though there was an ostensible reason why the Alter Rebbe was arrested, and it was a Mesira, and informed, and the, and the hate and the jealousy of others, but if God allowed it, it means that in heaven there was also some type of resistance. A kitruk, like a complaint, so to speak. Questioning whether the Alter Rebbe was doing the right thing and spreading Chassidus. By coming out of prison, being released from prison, it was a vindication, as the Balsham and the Magit told the Balsham, told the Alter Rebbe in prison, that not only should you continue what you're doing, but increase in the spreading and teaching of Chassidus. So here the questioner, so we've discussed in the past what, what is going on here. A man finally is spreading Torah, he has to, he has, he's, that's also challenged. Throughout history, many people did wrong things. That should be challenged in heaven. Here he's spreading Torah. So we spoke about the power of Primus Atera. The stakes were high, so the forces of the other side came out against it. This questioner phrases it a bit differently. If the whole point of Chassidus is to apply it to our lives, which of course is the whole theme of Chassidus applied, not my, my Chiddush, my innovation, but the Rabbi want the Tera Melosh Chassidus, is meant to apply it to our personal lives. So if that's the case, that it's applied to our lives, why was there a kitruk to prevent this? Why was there a challenge? Why was there a question? Why was there a um, so-called a, uh, a, a, uh, a complaint against bringing chassidus and affecting our lives? Why was there a kitruk to prevent this? Doesn't Hashem want us to serve Him in the best way possible? Doesn't God want us to serve Him in the best way possible, which means through chassidus? So the same answer, even though it's phrased the question of it, is the same answer. Because yes, of course God wants us. But when there's a new revelation like Chassidus, which has the power to bring Mashiach and to transform the world and to transform us, remember, God did create Zelu Umazeh Asalakim. He created two forces. There is going to be resistance. Whenever something great is about to enter in this world, there will always be resistance. The resistance is not because God is questioning it. It's because God set up a system that there are is going to be a prosecutor and a defendant, and a defense. And the case has to be made, because you want to transform the darkness of this world. So we have to recognize it, which is one of the reasons that the Rebbe says in a beautiful sikh in Tavshin Chavov, 1965, Yutas Kislev, why the Alter Rebbe, what, what happened that when he came after he was in prison, he was supposed to go to a certain home of a chassid, ended up the wrong address, and he came to a, a home that was of a person who was against chassidus, and says that was even worse than the imprisonment because he panicked. He actually tortured the Al-Tadab in words, insulting him, challenging him. So, the Rebbe, so what was Taka the reason for that? Because that's the Kavan of Chassidus, to transform the world. That's part of the Geula. The Geula of Chassidus is not just to come to Chassid, it would have been a celebration. That's why Chav Kislev was honored, because this happened on Chav Kislev. And the point was that even transforming, the work is to transform even there's a, an opposition, to allow an opposition. So there's an opposition to any great revelation. And of course, the vindication is that once it's proven, once you go through the doctors, once it's been challenged, like a shtar love irur, a contract that has been challenged, and there's an appeal, and it's, withheld, it's upheld, then you can no longer ever challenge it. That could never have been done if there was no opposition. So the opposition actually ends up being a virtue. At the time, it was a dark moment, a setback, so to speak. But it ended up creating an affirmation and a vindication and a confirmation that chassidus is now forever until Mashiach and later. 
to come and help us serve God in the best possible way. Another question was asked about Psalm 119. We talked about the Alter Rebbe, Neger Sekedish, says, and that's why there's a Chalukah Sashas, he says that every year, doesn't say when, but he says every year there should be a dividing of the Talmud, the whole Shas. And people should accept different Mesechtas. This became a custom that um, this was done now to finish Shas every year. And, um, he said, and this became that this is done, Yutas Kislev is the Shas is finished. So, on Yutas Kislev, the custom is that everyone takes a Mesechta, one tractate, and everybody concludes their tractate. So Yutas Kislev, you have a seam of the entire Shas. There's a whole sikha from the Rebbe that explains, it's printed in Sefer HaSichas, Tav Shemim Beis, volume 2, page 476 and on, what's the connection to Yutas Kislev, a beautiful sikha. But there's another thing that says in that Agedah Sekedish. It says there that all those that learn the Shas, their, their, their respective tractate, they should finish for themselves every week the Tamnia Apid Shabbatilim Kufutes. All the verses in the Psalm 119 in Tehillim. Which, of course, we say this year, connected to the Rebetzin, and with the Rebbe coming. So, the question asks is, so how come we don't follow the Alter Rebbe Directive to recite Psalms 119 weekly? The Rebbe makes a big deal about dividing Shaz, but almost no mention of Psalms 119. So the Rebbe actually refers to it in, in, in footnote 11 and footnote 112. He says, but Pearl, I've not seen that anyone is careful in saying the, this capital 119, even though he mentions that some say it on Shabbos after Mincha, Friday afternoon, after Mincha, after the, the afternoon service, including his father, the Rebbe's father would say it. And in, in footnote 121, the Rebbe explains that perhaps, it's not a complete answer, he says, you could say, um, footnote 112, I'm sorry, footnote 112, that this, the people are not careful about this 119, this uh, Psalm 119, because the, uh, what Tehillim achieves, Chassidus can achieve. So the learning of Chassidus, which is connected to Yutas Kislev, achieves that, as explained in this particular sikh, and I gave you the, the source. Okay. With that, let us go to some follow-up. Rochel and Leah. Rabbi Jacobson, thank you for your very meaningful and beneficial classes and program. Continuing along your lines of Hasidic explanation, how would it be explained, Leah's words to Rochel, when Rochel asked Leah for some of the jasmine that Reuben, her oldest son, had brought for his, mother's, for his mother Leah, so, so Rochel asked Leah, so Leah responds, is it not enough that you took my husband? You also want my flowers? After the self-sacrifice that Rochel had had and gave Leah the signs that Yaakov gave specifically to her, to avoid laying being embarrassed? Thank you. So we spoke that the reason that, that Rochel co cooperated, so to speak, in the conspiracy, and she gave the signs that Yaakov had given her, and therefore allowing Lovin's deception to be fulfilled by Leah marrying Yaakov, because if not, Leah would have been embarrassed. So based on that, so um, why would Leah say to her? It's almost like being ungrateful. It was Rachel that saved her, that saved her from embarrassment. So it's not enough that you took my husband, you also want my flowers. So I looked in Chesidus, I could not find a Maimer Chesidus, at least from the Rabbeim, there may be from the Chesidim, the Chesidus, Chesidus, maybe something on this. So I'll just speculate. Remember we spoke about then, 
That difference between Rachel and Leah, this was where the Teres Chaim says, the Mitla Rebbe says that Yaakov made a mistake, was that Leah is Almedis Kasi, the hidden worlds, and Rachel is Almedis Gali, Malchus, Leah is Bina, and, and Rachel is Malchus, the revealed worlds. And the truth is, to bring the Jewish nation into, into being, you needed both the connection to the inner hidden worlds of thought, Leah, and as well as the revealed worlds of Rachel. Yaakov thought it was only him and Rachel, Zah and Malchus. But Zah needs Bina, as explained in these by Moram, and we discussed it back a few weeks ago. So based on that, that's why Rachel must have sensed that, and therefore she went along, she understood we need Leah into the picture. But that still does not mean there is a tenuous relationship between the two, at least till Mashiach comes. Why? Because the hidden worlds, as the, Alter, as the Mittler Rebbe explains in Teir Shaim, the Alter Rebbe speaks about it more briefly in Teir Eir, is a tenuous, is a, there's a tenuousness between the two worlds because the hidden worlds come from a very different reality. And in many ways, you see Rachel has challenges with it. That's why she has jealousy. And Samach Tzedek explains it's a healthy jealousy of Leah having children. And Leah has issues with Rachel because Rachel was the beloved one, the chosen one. So there's ultimately a tenuous relationship, a tension between Bina and Malchus. Ultimately, the goal would be there should be total unity. But there's a tension because one is the, the hidden world and a hidden world, like the world of thought and the world of speech, don't always get along that well. What do I mean by that? Of course, you speak about what you think, but there's all parts of the speech that have never expressed in, in, in parts of thought that are never expressed in speech. And speech has the quality that can communicate to others. So Rachel had the mile the advantage, the virtue of spreading and revealing Yaakov's power, Yaakov's godliness, the godliness of Zoh, of Teferis, of Yaakov. Leah had the power of being a source and a root in the deepest levels. And there's a tenuousness between the two. That doesn't mean they ultimately won't go along, but at the time there was. So they could say, so even though Rachel understood and Leah appreciated that Rachel gave her the signs, still there was a tenuousness. The question is, what does it have to do with the jasmine and the flowers? So basically, you could say that the jasmine and the flowers, which is reach, scent, is connected, Chassidus explains, to Makif, to Amidiskastya, to the hidden worlds. Ruvain, the oldest of Leah, was bringing flowers to, uh, to his mother, which reflected her deeper level. Rachel wanted a connection to that. And Leah said, no, this is my domain, this is my strength. So enough, you took my husband, in other words, to reveal, fine, I understand the importance of Malchus and re- revealing the teferis of Yaakov into the lower worlds. But this is my domain, the domain of scent. That's one way perhaps you can explain this. Okay. Another question that was asked is why Rachel passed away after having sons. Shalom, Rav Jacobson. My husband and I love your weekly lectures. I was studying Parshat HaShavua this week. This is referring to two weeks ago. So we're talking about the chapter of, um, of Ayetze. And I was struck by an irony, possibly more evident to a woman than a man. Rachel Menu, Rachel our mother, matriarch, says to her husband, give me sons or I shall die. Immediately after having sons, being two sons, Joseph and Benjamin, Yosef and Benjamin, she dies. Is Torah teaching us to watch our tongues, be careful what you say? Does the Rebbe teach us about this? Thanks so much. So in general, that, that verse, of course, is filled with controversy. What exactly does that mean? Because then Yaakov gets angry at his wife, at Rachel. And my God, that I'm depriving you of children? And there are many different explanations, which I'm not going to go into right now, because that's not the immediate question. 
Now, why did she feel she died? Because she felt her whole role is to bring life into this world. Remember, Leah was the one that had children, but Rachel was there, to, and that's why Yaakov chose Rachel first, because he wanted her to bring life into this world. As the Alter Rebbe explains in Teirah Eir, that there's a connection between Yaakov and Rachel, but it's not necessary through having a child. Other revelations come from it, and Rachel felt that if she doesn't bring a child, there's no for future. It would just be her and uh, Yaakov. So she basically felt that she had no purpose without having a child. Yaakov responds to her, am I God? So some say that was a way of actually saying and saying that we need to feel this pain in order to, Chidush Harim says this, and others as well, to feel the pain in order to invoke God's blessing for a child. That I'm with you. And we have to feel it together. That was his anger. Not anger at her, but anger at the situation. And recognizing that we have to be completely devoid of everything before we finally get the blessing. Others say that Yaakov was deflecting the anger that Rachel had by himself getting angry. And by deflecting it, it would allow the blessing to emerge, which had to come Rachel's request from God, not Rachel requesting it from Yaakov. However you explain it, Rachel still felt that she's not complete without it. So why she died afterwards is a big question, and not necessarily connected because she said, I would die. It could be explained in other ways because Rachel fulfilled her purpose. And not, if you, even had she not said it, it still would have happened. And she fulfilled her purpose, and that came her time. And she was buried in Kever Rachel. Rachel Mavakal Boneho, she cries for her children, and that was her role. That's how I would explain it. I would not say, I don't think I've seen, because she said it, that's why she was so-called punished, and that's why it happened there. I'll look more further into it, but if anybody has any comments, please feel free to share. Okay, another question. Another follow-up. This was about weddings. I enjoyed your video with thoughts about marriage and weddings. Can you share more about the Rebbe's directives about extra expenses by weddings and traveling overseas to do weddings? I know this is something the Rebbe spoke about, but I'd like to know how you understand it. Thank you. I believe I spoke about it um, then, a few weeks ago, in the program where we spoke about weddings. The bottom line, the Rebbe in general, his rule was, The Torah is careful to protect money, of, not to spend money extra and unnecessary, whether to show off or to compete with or demonstrate that to people who don't have money want to show that they too can make a wedding and they feel pressured to to, uh, com- to match their neighbors and friends and so on. The Rebbe was of the belief, I quoted it there, that a wedding should be actually as, as, uh, lim- as slim as possible. Now, whether people are going to listen or not is another question. So that would be the answer. That was the Rebbe's approach in general. And it should be reich a rich wedding spiritually, but then the physical doesn't have to be overdone. Now, people who do it overdone, they have the money for it, also there, the Rebbe would probably tell them the same thing. But again, in these type of matters, the Rebbe did not command anyone what to do. He gave his directions and guidelines, and he hoped people would understand. I don't have much more to say on this topic. Okay. There's another follow-up, which we're going to do next week. We're not going to do now. I'm going to go now to the Chassidus question, which is as follows. Can you please explain... Can you please explain the concept of olives in Chassidus? 
I always knew that owls represent oil, which is the deepest secrets. Now I'm learning in the end of Yeshevah's Beganim, 1979, that's Lamates, Tavsh Lamates, that an olive makes you forget learning of 70 years. It's actually a Talmud in Hedius, uh, Yud Gimel Lamed Beis, 13b. Uh, so I'm learning there about the 70 year, forgetting, making you forget, and it represents Klippa. What's going on? In other words, the contradiction, olives, is it revealing deeper secrets? Or is it uh, representing something negative, making you forget? Well, if you look in the Gemara and Herius, you'll see that the Gemara actually says the following. It says, Kishem, just as an olive, eating olives makes you forget the study of 70 years, eating olive oil or drinking olive oil makes you remember study of 70 years. So that's, in, and therein lies the difference, the olive and the olive oil. Olive oil present, produces oil, which we use from the Beis Amigdash, Shem Zayizoch, as I mentioned earlier, pure olive oil, which represents Chochmah, Benefesh, the spark of Chochmah, the purest part of the soul, within which, within which resides the highest levels of Yechida, Echai Yechida from Keser. And as well as Hanukkah, we use Shem Zayizoch. We also use Shem Zayiz, olive oil. So the oil actually is what produces light. We'll talk about the meaning, deeper meaning in a moment. Olives, on the other hand, with the shell, is a klippa. So the Talmud makes it very clear. One makes you forget, one makes you remember. Now, how is it possible the same item, the same fruit, can do both? So how do we extract oil from olive? You have to press it. And this becomes a lesson in many matters of life that the only way you produce oil, you get quality out of somebody is when they're pressed. An olive does not produce oil until you press it. The Rebbe Rashab actually uses that on Yutas Kislev. He says that it's a difficult thing to say, but the prison, imprisonment of the Alta Rebbe was like the pressing of the olive that produced the best oil possible. Now, oil is primisater. So we're going to refer you now to Imre Bina. In Imre Bina, of the Rebbe, that's the Mittler Rebbe, uh, Shar Krishma, chapters 52-56 is a beautiful, powerful discussion on oil and wine. So there's three levels. There's bread, which really includes all regular foods. That's nigla de tater. That's the revealed part of tater. Then there's Two parts of teta that are primisatera. In that, I'm sorry, primisatera is the inner dimension. You don't see it at the obvious. Not like outer food. You have to produce it because it's concealed. Which two fruits produce a drink, or they produce a liquid that's concealed? One is the grape, and one is the olive. So these are two levels. The grape is rosendaraisa, wine. By squeezing it, you produce wine, and shemen zayis. The olive produces oil that's rosin di rosin daraisa. It's even deeper. That's why you find, and the, Rebbe, the Mittler Rebbe explains it there, a few halachas actually. There's a concept, shemen sof agabi yayin. Shemen floats above everything. It's the lightest of liquids. So if you put shemen over water, the, the, the oil will rise. If you put oil over wine, the oil will rise. So there's questions in halacha. One question, for example, if the oil gets impure and it's, right, and it's floating on top of uh, wine, does the wine also get impure? So that depends. There are two opinions. Another kashayal and halacha is about akira and hanocha. You're not allowed to carry on Shabbos. 
So the question is, if you carry something out that has oil and, and wine, is it like considered as separate or is it considered as one? So the Rebbe, the Rebbe asked the question, this is a machlekes and mitzis. Is it attached or not attached? He explains there's two levels in, in olives, in olive oil. An oil that relates to wine and an oil that's completely separate from it. You can look it up there for more in detail. So bottom line, olive oil represents the deeper dimension, the innermost dimension of the secrets of Torah, like the, like the oil that's extracted. That's why it produces light. Wine doesn't produce light. It produces other strengths. She so had the secrets and the secrets of secrets, which she discusses there more at length. One more thing I'd refer you to um, is the Sikhs of the Rebbe Chofov and the Shabbos afterwards, Shabbos Pasha De'e, Tovshim Membez, 5742. That would be 1982. Um, where the Rebbe speaks about 70 years of Teir Semes in Yerushalayim. That year was 70 years from the establishment of Teir Semes. And that, the Rebbe spoke at the end of the Sikha, but he talked about the number 70. He brought this Gemara in Herius and explained what, what 70 years is. Why 70? He says that's a stage in learning and then you go to a new stage. So there's a forgetfulness that's possible, and there's also the remembering it that's possible. Forgetfulness comes from a negative place. And he explains from 70 is 70 is also the gematria of 10 times 7. He brought from the Kutateta Baleshcha 32b and Chukah 65d, where it discusses this element regarding the Menera. So what do we have with olive oil? You have 70, because there's the 70 branches of the Menera that's lit with olive oil, and 7 times 10 is 70. And that's why olive oil has the power to strengthen memory and olives weaken. There he explains as well whether the weakening has a positive element or not because we find by Rab Zeyr that when he forgot, he wanted to forget Babylonian methodology in order to achieve the Jerusalem Talmud methodology. So it wasn't to forget to forget. It was forget in order to achieve greater understanding. So it appears that the Rebbe was speaking there in the negative that uh, by Zayish you can't say that. Because there it's all about forgetting. It's not about forgetting as, forgetting as an end in itself. That's not a positive with the olives. Okay, so that covers that. And uh, as far as a lesson to us in life is that Hanukkah reveals the deepest secrets. That's why Hanukkah is connected to Yutas Kislev. It comes literally just four or five days after Yutas Kislev. Because it's about the gili of Shemen Shebeteda, the oil, the olive oil in Teda, which is Rosen or Rosen de Rosen, the secrets of secrets. And that's what Alter Rebbe revealed after he was pressed, so to speak, as the Rebbe Rashab says. Okay, now let's do the three essays. Three essays. So essay number one is, I'll do it later. Shmuley Katsoff, age 16, Brooklyn, New York. A student, Yeshiva Darke Menachem. There's an important problem that faces us today that is called procrastination. Procrastination is defined by people just sitting around, wasting their days, doing absolutely nothing important. Teenagers are particularly vulnerable to the problem of procrastination. And goes on to describe it a little more. There's a concept that has been brought down in Chassidus that solves the problem of procrastination. Chassidus tells us that we are a godly nation. We are a godly nation and are meant to focus on the priority of serving God and push away distractions in our lives, because distractions are a ploy of the evil inclination to stop us from doing what we should be doing. He goes on to explain how we fight procrastination. For a 16-year-old, this is a, a beyond excellent essay. Um, it's an, a, and it quotes different solutions to procrastination, but uses this to help us really 
fight it by understanding certain key principles and applying them to our lives. Well done. The next one is separateness that leads to closeness. Levy Berger, Bell Harbor, Florida. Student, Yeshiva Tarar. Doesn't give me an age, so I don't have that. Okay. This essay, I grew up in Ottawa, the capital of Canada, in the Chabad home Shlichas, and I always felt very connected with the Rabbeim of Chabad. When I was 12 years old, my father hired a tutor to teach me Tanya, the foundational work of Chabad Chassidus. I enjoyed it very much. I felt there was something special about it, although I was a little young to grasp the depth of Chassidus. Goes on to talk a little about his own experiences, and then says... Around a year and a half ago, I read a book that really resonated. It was all about experiencing life from your place of essence. Connecting to the essence. And that's when I began to discover the learning chassidus more in depth that helped me understand this essence. It goes on in a personal way, describing from Tanya how we reach an essence and how we apply that and implement that and, and actualize that in our lives. An interesting essay, an interesting angle. Separateness that leads to closeness. Good. Very good. And the final third essay for this week is The Three Tricks in a Chassid's Basket by Ben Diamond, age 34, Armed Forces Europe. Job, USACE, construction inspector. Just as an aside, I find it amazing when I see the different people from different walks of life in different parts of the world contributing these essays. I wish... We had the wherewithal and the resources to go and actually meet these people and get their story. Because what's Ben Diamond in Armed Forces Europe, what's be interesting, what led him to do this essay contest, what's his background, and I think it would be very interesting. So just a thought as I'm reading it. But the truth is with everyone, every essayist is a whole life of his own or her own. And I think that's so much part of the richness of people from so many different backgrounds and different ages and from wherever they may be in the world, contributing writing. And we know taking writing and essays does not take a minute. It's real investment and work. I just am you know, really in awe and humbled by this whole uh, contributions of all these essays. So thank you. So this essay, The Three Tricks in a Chassid's Basket. A burden in hand, he writes. Ben. A farmer in Soviet Russia once attended a communist rally. Okay, it goes well, and I don't want to read this whole joke. It's a, it begins with a communist joke. You'll have to read it yourself. But, and it's a very funny joke, actually. But he basically uses that to, to express what his objective with this essay is not going to promise the proverbial 100 cows and 1,000 acres, lofty matters of deeply rooted joy, and optimistic tranquility, Simcha and Betochen, because these are matters that are best imbued in the cycle of meditation, prayer, learning, practice under the tutelage of a personal spiritual mentor, Mashpia. Instead, I'll promise some life hacks reinforced by the teachings of Chassidus. Nicely stated. And he goes on three tricks. Reframe reality, make an appointment, be a hypocrite. And he goes on, I must say, well done essay. Very good food for thought. Very entertaining. And really, uh, I think, gives some, uh, some really powerful Hasidic tools based on this approach. So check that out. And all these essays are at me at, at uh, chassidusapply.com. We post them there as we post them each week in the order that they were marked, the marks that they received. And you can also receive them when you subscribe to our weekly email. So, my friends, this first night of Hanukkah has opened up a new door, a new channel, a new Hanukkah, light into our lives, into the world. 
May it be a very illuminating Hanukkah as I opened my words at the beginning of the program. Illuminating, inspiring, empowering, illumination, both physical and spiritual illumination, everything that we may need. And it should be a, like the Ramban says, they should never seize these flames until they bring us to the flames that we rekindle, the flames of the Besamilish Hashlishi, through the spreading of chsidis and applying of chsidis. Chutzah, even to the places that are dark, we illuminate the candle, the, the olive oil of the secrets and secret of secrets of chsidis, and we illuminate even the darkest corners of the world, and through that Mashiach said he will come. So may it be in this Hanukkah early, and uh, everyone have a very Freilich and Hanukkah. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. And um, be blessed, and it should be again illuminating and a beautiful Hanukkah.